Welcome. Wow, what a passage, huh? Man, you don't hear that one in uh, Sunday school or, man, where are my teenagers at? Where are my teenagers at? Raise your hand if you're a teenager. Teenager, teenager, all right, all right. Some of you wannabes, all right. Oh, man. Whew. You don't see that passage, that type of stuff in sex education classes and all sorts of things going on in there, all right? So uh, interesting. It should be uh, very hopefully an instructive and encouraging passage. Uh, I send you greetings from the convention. That's where I was at on Oahu. Uh, So thank you guys for your prayers for me in that time. And uh, God's doing some cool things in Hawaii. God's doing some really cool things here in Maui, and I'm really excited about them. Uh, A few brief words. Uh, For those who came and helped at our preschool open house, I just want to give you a very big thank you and a shout out. Uh, Thank you so much for your help and your labor in the Lord. Please know it is not in vain uh, as we got to love on and minister to some of the preschool families. So thank you very much. Um, Speaking of thanks, thank you to our hula ladies for dancing. Good job. It's my turn now, all right? You guys ready? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The carpet will get set on fire. I'll be so fast with these feet. No. Um, Thank you. Thank you. It was beautiful. Uh, Glory be to God. And then last thanks um, for our veterans. This Wednesday is Veterans Day. What's the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day, you might be wondering? Uh, Memorial Day is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong later, for those who have died in service of our country. Veterans Day, also known as Armistice Day, is for those who have served of all of our U.S. armed forces and the veterans who have served in those uh, capacity. So I'm just going to ask you right now, ask if you've served in the U.S. Armed Forces in any capacity, uh, please stand. Stand. Don't be bashful. Stand. All right, guys, look around. You guys give these guys a hand of applause. All right, you may be seated. You may be seated. Uh, Thank you so much for your service uh, to our country, and I know ultimately to the Lord. Uh, One of the things I'll say is I know that can be controversial because different people have different views of the military and things that they have done, but let me just go ahead and say this. Uh, We can disagree with whatever the government does and the reasons they do it, and yet still honor those who serve and sacrifice and put significant portions of their lives to that. Uh, many of which we do benefit from, even if we don't agree with it. Uh, So thank you for your services. Um, Thank you for your sacrifice and your family's sacrifice. So uh, Armistice Day was actually what it was normally originally called, uh, the 11th day of the 11th month, the 11th hour, uh, Woodrow Wilson. And um, it was to celebrate the end of World War I, the war to end all wars. So they said. Uh, At the end of 1919, there were more than 9 million soldiers uh, dead collectively from those involved. A horrible, horrible thing. And the seeds of war, really, that we, as we've been walking through Genesis, right, the seeds of war were really started where? Way back in Genesis chapter 3, right? If you remember, way back at the fall. And those seeds started to bear fruit immediately in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain rose up against his own brother, man made in the image and likeness of God, and slayed him. 
And those seeds have been sprouting ever since, uh, most recently from Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers did what? They connived, they plotted, they schemed, and they sold their brother, Joseph, into slavery. And so we hope and we pray and we wait and we watch because one day a king is coming. A war will happen that will end all wars. And we will forever be with our Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 38. This seems, this passage, I mean, did this, anybody get just shocked in here this morning? Were you like, whoa, what's up with this passage, all right? If you didn't raise your hand, I know you were thinking it, all right? And your biggest, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in here, right? So uh, we've been working through Genesis. Last week, we started the great Joseph narrative, okay? So the 37, his brothers are, are there. Joseph's the favorite. Jacob, uh, his dad, plays favorites. He's got the coat of many colors, and his brother's hate him, all right? And they really, really hate him. It says it three times in chapter 37. They hated him. That means they really, really don't like him. And, and so they sold him into slavery. And chapter 37 ends with Joseph going into the promise, or sorry, out of the promised land into Egypt and being purchased by the captain of the guard, Potiphar. 37 ends. Jacob believes his favorite son of Rachel, his deceased wife, is now dead and just mourns. He refuses to be comforted. He's, he's just weeping. And that's where we leave 37. Chapter 39 picks up where 37 left off. So if you were to look at chapter 39, it resumes. Boom. Potiphar. Joseph with him. And then right smack sandwiched between these two passages, 37 and 39, is chapter 38 about Judah and Tamar. And what in the world is this doing here? Does it not seem out of place to you? The 37 and then 39 and then 38. And we're talking about spilling semen on the ground and just all sorts of madness, all right? And God's killing people. Like, wow, what is happening here? Uh, you don't find this type of stuff in Twilight or popular literature of today, and it's just not there. It's, it's just different. And this is one of the things we've seen since we've started Genesis, is the painful effects of sin on individuals, the painful effects of sin on families, all of it, and all of it, it just shatters out and rockets through families and generation after generation and we see pain, brokenness, and yet at the same time, we see hope for these broken and messed up families, all right? So some of you, many of us come from broken and messed up families, right? Can we say amen? amen. All right, and it's, some of the families are blended, a lot like the families here. Sometimes you have multiple wives, not at the same time in our culture, but generally one after another after another. Okay, we do this also. We have no moral high ground in our culture to look at this and say, man, they were messed up, all right? You, our culture is so messed up in regards to family relationships. We are no place to be judging the scriptures, Amen. And that's at one time a condemnation on us. At the same time, that should breathe hope into you right now. Because God works all across Scripture through these types of families. Praise God. And it's no different in our passage this morning. 
And so, while we know that there is hope for us, we must remember, and this is what gives us hope, this passage is not first and foremost about us. Right? It's not, there's not lessons here and principles here about us, first and foremost. First and foremost, it's about who? Jesus. This passage is about Jesus. What? Right, we do this every week. What? You mean Simeon and Levi killing a whole town in Genesis 34 is about Jesus? Yeah, you guys saw it then. We've seen it all along. This passage is first and foremost about God working redemption through Christ, bringing his promises to pass. By the end of the sermon, I hope you'll see it and your mind goes in worship of our God. All right, so let's pray and let's get rolling. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, you are working in all things, Lord, all things, not one ounce or facet of your plan will be thwarted by sin. And Lord, we praise you for that. You are majestic in holiness and you are awesome in power, Father. We praise you and give you the glory for that. And Lord, I pray that you would breathe hope into those who are hurting this morning. I pray that you would give endurance to those who are running this morning as we see how your grace just breaks in on families who are broken. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, maybe they feel uh, like Judah and Tamar, Lord, may you draw them to Christ and may they see your love for sinners. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, two points. Point number one, God's gifts without God's blessings are a curse. Point number one, God's gifts without God's blessings are a curse. Let's flush that out a little bit. What's going on? Uh, verses 1 through 12, what happens here, right? So like I said, it's out of place. It seems like it just doesn't belong. One of these things is not like the other, so the song says, right? This would be that one thing. But Timothy, or actually Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says that, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? Amen? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And so this is no different. That means that this is no accident and that there's profit here for us. So what's going on? First, let's say it's like the author is trying to set up a context for us. He's trying to show us a contrast by showing positive Joseph obedience in chapter 37, and then in chapter 38, he's going to compare Judah, set him side by side. You can imagine it as if you walk into a jeweler shop and you say, I want to look at that ring. And if you're going to propose to your wife and you're young and you're poor, then it's going to be on the smaller end of that ring spectrum, right? It's going to be a, I'll just take the 0.25 carat, all right? I'm not going to go with the one carat. All right, you walk into the jeweler, you ask them, can I see a ring? And, and they pull out of the box and they get the ring. And what do they put down? They put down black felt normally. They put down that black felt and then they put that ring right on it. What do they do that for? Contrast. Right? That's it. It's contrast. Against the black felt, the light and the diamond just... And if you're wise, you won't take your wife in there with you, or soon-to-be wife, right? 
then it's going to be an even bigger ring. You'll be working even longer, all right? So that's a tip for you guys, all right? Um, so that's kind of what he's doing. He's setting up the contrast. And so Joseph leaves the promised land that was promised to them against his own will. He's a slave. He didn't want to leave. Judah, by contrast, goes deeper into the promised land, what was promised to him, but yet he breaks God's law. He starts to mingle with the people of Canaan. He starts to marry one of their women. Now, if you remember way back to Abraham, Abraham has Isaac after he's like 100 years old, right? He's the, the world's oldest parent, 100. He has Isaac. And as Isaac's older and grown now, jo uh, Abraham calls his servant over, Eleazar. Says, come, put your hand under my thigh. Make a covenant with me. Whatever you do, do not take a wife for my son Isaac from the people of Canaan. So he sends this dude on a long journey to go find a wife from somewhere else, but not Canaan. Same thing, Isaac now takes his father's advice. He has twins, Jacob and Esau, and he tells Jacob right before he flees, and he says, one of the things, go to your, your father's house, to Laban, and whatever you do, don't take a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites. By contrast, what did Esau do? He went and married a woman, women of the land, right? So all along, they've been avoiding intermarrying with these people. Why? Because they're idolaters. They will draw the hearts away from these people, away from their God that he called them out of. This is no different with us today. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. And so Judah, being the first one, good job, uh, goes into Canaan, the promised land, and actually marries a daughter of Canaan. It doesn't even tell us her name, that she's a daughter of Shua. We don't even know her name. We just know she's a Canaanite, and that's enough for the writer. And so Judah has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, or Shelah, all right? So Shelah, if you're from Australia, you're like, dude, that's a weird name, right? This is a Hebrew name, so it's Shelah, all right? So Shelah, and he has three sons, and God kills the first two sons for their wickedness. Right there, the passage is already rubbing us wrong, isn't it? What does it say God did to Aaron Onan? He killed them. That's what it says he did. It says that they were wicked and God killed them. Both of those statements are controversial in our society today. One, to say that somebody's wicked. Well, who are you to judge? Two, to say that God kills them. Brothers and sisters, this God is not different today. The, God, the sign that you see people say that God is love, yeah, that's the same God. He kills people for their wickedness. That's him. That makes us uncomfortable. Why? Because some of us in here are wicked. We don't like to think of a God that does that. Isn't he love? Yes, he is loving, but he's also holy. The Bible calls him a consuming fire. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be obeyed and honored and glorified. This is a God who kills people. Why does he kill them? Well, he just tells us that error is wicked. That's all we know. 
He's just a wicked dude. Onan, how come he kills Onan? Well, it's a little culturally different. So uh, he gets a, a wife for heir, his oldest. Her name is Tamar. Very good. Her name is Tamar. But since Onan dies, now Tamar is a widow. And back in that time, it was a very agrarian society. They did farming and shepherds, and there was no occupation for the women to go to, which means if she didn't have anybody step in and care for her, she'd become a prostitute. That's how she would provide for herself. She'd become a prostitute. And so they had a custom that if there was a brother, in this case Onan, it was his responsibility to, and he, if he wasn't married, to take her as a wife. And the first child they have would not be his, it would be his brother's. They would even name that first child after his dad, heir, or his deceased. And he would raise up so that heir's line was not cut off. And then now Tamar is cared for for the rest of her life. She doesn't have to go into prostitution. She's cared for. And God actually codified this into law later. What Onan does, there's all sorts of weird teaching that surrounds Onan and his stuff, but basically what Onan is killed for is he ref he's selfish. He doesn't want to have the responsibility of raising a child that will steal some of his inheritance, or so in his mind. He didn't want that. So what he did is he would have, okay, this is getting a PG-13, all right, parents? This is it's in the Bible, all right? He would have sex with Tamar, and he would pull out at the last minute and spill his semen on the ground. Now, some of you are like, he said semen. How could he? I just can't believe he just said semen. Oh, he said it again. How many more times is he going to say it? All right. Brothers and sisters, we live in a highly sexualized culture. The number one export in America is pornography. More than 40% of all emails generated are pornographic in nature. The average age that people are losing their virginity is 16 years old. The average age they're getting married is 25 and 27 years old. So if we don't talk about it, we're in trouble. We have no choice but to talk about it, all right? So if you guys can't handle semen, we got to step up a little bit, all right? We have to speak truth in the culture we live in. And this is the reality. And what was the reality with Onan? He wanted the gratification of sex without the responsibility of sex. You mean guys are like that? <laughs> Praise the Lord they're not like that anymore, right? Men today, they don't want, the, you know, they, they love the responsibility that, no, men are the same. Suddenly, this book just got very relevant, right? So because of Onan's wickedness and selfishness, the Lord killed him also. Now, Judah's starting to do some math. Er gone, Onan gone, I have one more son, Shelah. Judah's starting to think, I'm not going to give Shelah to Tamar, because what might happen to that dude? <laughs> he might die too, all right? So he tells, and he's too young at the time, so he tells Tamar, just wait until he gets old enough. The text indicates that Judah had no intention of giving his son to marry her. This was evil in that time. So what are some takeaways we see of this? A few things before we move on. 
Here's Judah in the promised land. God had said, I'm going to give your descendants this land forever. This is yours. This is his gift to them. And yet, as he's walking in disobedience, he's finding that God's promised land is actually filled with curse more than a blessing. Because the land promise, and this is going to be important later, so just take this nugget, plug it in your brain, and store it for later. The land promise was never meant to be divorced from the promise of relationship with God. All right? The, the blessing of the land cannot be divorced from the promise of relationship with God. This is really important as we talk about conversations surrounding the nation of Israel today. Because right now they're in a state of non-relationship with God, rejecting their Messiah, have no right to the land under such conditions, and never have. That'll be important later, towards the end of Genesis. So plug it, put it away. It's important to see that the land, this, this land of Canaan, is not magical, all right? It's not a magic land filling with, with fairies and, and unicorns and there's just food everywhere, right? It's just land apart from the blessing of God. Such that Moses says, God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I don't want to go if you're not there. It's just land. It's not magical. And as Judah experiences, as he's walking in sin, God's blessing can become a curse and bring much pain to his family. The same is true of us, beloved. God blesses us with gifts, right? He gives us things. Many times he gives us gifts in response to prayer. Man, Lord, I need a job. I need a job. He gives you a job. Man, I would love a spouse, a husband, or a wife. He gives us a spouse, a husband, or a wife. I would love a child, and many times he gives us a child. I would love a house, and, and so we pray, oh, Lord, give me a house, and he gives us a house. I would love more money. We need more finances to be better and do this. He gives us more finances. I need a vehicle. He gives us a vehicle. I need more health. My health is down. I'm sick. He gives us health. I need a church family. He gives us a church family, and, and on and on, and he gives us gifts. He loves to give his children gifts. He's a good dad. Who doesn't? like to give their children gifts. And what happens is we take those gifts, we take them and we love them, and instead of using those gifts to increase our love for God and the advancement of His purposes, we use them for our own comfort, our own desires, and ultimately allow them many times to take us away from God rather than closer to him. Strange how that functions, right? Very strange how it can be. So we become consumed with the gifts rather than the giver. And this is what Judah is an illustration of. He's in the land, apart from God, and the land becomes a curse. Solomon draws this out in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. This is really fascinating. Listen to this, just two verses. Listen to this. Solomon says this exact principle here. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet... God does not give him the power to enjoy them. 
Does that not blow your mind? God can give you wealth, possessions, and honor and withhold the power to enjoy those very things. Do you know anyone like that? You know somebody in your life like that that seems to just have everything? Man, they just have everything. And you're like, if only I had what they had, I might be happy. Maybe that's you. And yet, they often, like Judah, kick against the very one who can deliver them and give them the power to enjoy it. Like Judah, his only hope of being saved from the famine to come was his younger brother Joseph. And he sold him as a slave. And we do the same thing. The only person who can deliver us from our downward spiral of sin and selfishness is Christ, is Christ, is treasuring Christ and letting all these things go, and yet we kick against him. We kick against him. Augustine, the great theologian, said it like this, said it well. He said, he that is good is free, though he is a slave. Well, think about Joseph, that in response to Joseph. He that is good is free, though he is a slave. And he that is evil is a slave, though he be a king. He that is evil is slave, though he be a king. Joseph, a slave, was free because, as the text says, God was with him. Judah, on the other hand, was a slave to his lusts and brought much pain. So sometimes God's gifts without God's blessings are a curse. Point number two, God's blessing for the unreached and the unreachable. All right? Number two, God's blessing for the unreached and the unreachable. So the rest of the story goes on. Uh, he goes and he puts Tamar away, and, and then Judah's wife eventually dies. He goes up to shear sheep. Tamar sees this opportunity. She sees that Shelah is older and has not been given to her. And so she goes up on the path. This says something of Judah's character that she thought he would even fall for this, by the way. He goes up on the path, and she dresses like a prostitute. She puts a veil on, uh, a cult prostitute. Judah turns aside. They sleep together. Uh, he basically, asks, she asks for payment up front. And he says, I don't have anything. I'll send you a goat later. Real nice, right? Real chivalrous. Adultery is always wicked and terrible, right? So I'll send you a goat later. She says, what are you going to give me as a sign? And essentially, he leaves his ID and his social security number with her. Good job, Judah, all right? Sin is deceitful, all right? It's deceitful. Uh, he leaves his ID and social security card and says, I'll come back and get it later. He sends his friend a Canaanite also to take the goat and find the woman, and suddenly she's gone. She's nowhere to be found. And rather than looking for her and finding her, it's interesting, the text says that Judah stopped looking for, ah, just let it go, just let it go. Why? Because he didn't want to be laughed at by the people of the land. He wanted to be ashamed. And so that's a really damning statement about Judah, actually, because Judah was okay to be frowned upon by God so long as he was not laughed at by men. This text is still really relevant, right? Very relevant. Beloved, and men, but women also, 
let your heart be resolved. No matter your age, whether you're a teenager in high school or your gray, beautiful hair, resolve in your heart that you will live for the approval of God alone, regardless of what people think. Because only doing that will bring you life and joy that you seek in Christ. Now, the last two verses just seem like insignificant details. Uh, so as he goes, he sleeps with her. She, you guys know the story. She gets pregnant. Uh, nobody knows about this until the end of the third trimester, and she's starting to show now. And Judah is very uh, gracious whenever she's caught. He says, bring her out and let her be burned for her adultery. She says, wait a minute, the man to whom these things belong is the one of whom I'm this child with. Can you imagine Judah's feeling at that moment? <laughs> it's like, by the way, here's your ID and your social security card. I don't know whose these are, but you guys tell me whose they are and bring him too. Guess what's happening? Suddenly Tamar's not getting burned, all right? And Judah says, she's more righteous than I. I've sinned against her. And he purposes and he never sleeps with and touches her again. Impregnates his daughter-in-law. Then it records the last two verses, her twins. She has twins, Perez and Zera. And there's that whole battle in the womb, right? They actually named him Perez because he breached. That's what, his, that's what his name means, is a breach. Dude, you breached. That's his name. His name is breach, right? Perez, that's the name. And Zerah, the one that they tied the scarlet cord around, actually means scarlet in Hebrew. Seems like insignificant details, but those are actually the golden. That's the, that's the icing on top of the story right there. You say, how so? Remember I said this passage is all about who? You guys don't sound very confident about that. This passage is all about Jesus. Jesus. Let's see. Am I right about that? Let's see. Let's check it out. Why is this all about Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible, is an unfolding story of a single, unbroken, unbreakable promise. God's promise to restore all things, the world, mankind, everything from the destructive nature of sin. And how is he going to do it? Genesis chapter 3.15, through the seed of a woman. Now we see here the seed of a woman. Brothers and sisters, where does this play in with Joseph's narrative? Whether Joseph's betrayal or Judah's sin in the land, make no mistake, God's purposes will stand. God's plans will always go forward. And here in this odd, shocking chapter, this crazy union between a father and his daughter-in-law, we have the seed of a woman being born, twins, actually. And these sons show up somewhere else in the Bible also. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. I'm going to click over there with you. Matthew 1, New Testament. You remember there's, there's 10 sections in Genesis. 
generations. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac. These are generations of Esau, of Jacob. All right, it goes on, and now we're in the generations of Jacob. Notice how Matthew chapter 1 opens up. Check this out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very similar, right? That's almost like saying, these are the generations of Jesus Christ. Check this out, verses 2 through 6. This is pretty sweet. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Tracking with me? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Raham. That's a harlot, by the way. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Moabitess, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And if we were to go on, who do you think that genealogy ends at? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <laughs> do you see what just happened there? Wait a minute, this, this crazy union, Tamar, earns a spot in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a Canaanite woman who had a relationship with her father-in-law. Doesn't only earn a spot in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She even is mentioned by name, one of four women mentioned by name. You notice Sarah wasn't in there. Rebecca wasn't in there. Rachel wasn't in there. Leah, not there. Only four other women. Guess who those four other women are? Tamar, number one. Four more. Rahab, the harlot. Ruth, the Moabitess. Bathsheba, David's adultery. And the fifth one's Mary, of course the mother of Jesus. All of them, scandalous marriages. Every single one of them were scandalous. Rahab, a harlot. Ro uh, Ruth was a Moabitess. You guys remember the Moabites? Lot sleeps with his eldest daughter and has two sons, Moab and Ammon. Whew, an incestuous relationship way back in Genesis 19. Bathsheba, you guys all know David and King David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. If you were to read Matthew 1, it doesn't even say Bathsheba. It actually says he had Solomon or her son by the wife of Uriah. It's just a reminder for you. By the way, he had an adultery. He had an adulterous affair. And so Tamar works her way here into the genealogy of Christ, the Son of God. What do we learn from this thousands of years later? What do we see here? I hope a lot of hope, man. I hope you just have a lot of hope from that. For your broken family, that God can use it to accomplish his 
purposes. Actually, he promises to. He promises to. So what are some ways, just two ways to, to think on as I let you go? Number one, all these women are all Gentiles with the exception of Mary and Bathsheba. All Gentiles, all outside the covenant promises of God. Brothers and sisters, God's plan has always been for the nations. Always, from beginning to end, God's plan was to bless all the peoples of the, na- of the world. All the families of the earth in you shall be blessed, says to Abraham. So that means Jew, Gentile, Hawaiian, Caucasian, Filipino, Japanese, Okinawan, Korean, Mexican, all everything in between. The song says red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight and have always been. Have always been. All peoples. This means that, brothers and sisters, as a church, we are a missional people. We live with a very intentional, passionate, time-sensitive objective to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. This is our commission, and this has been God's plan. So I want you to be in prayer about that, about how the Lord is moving you to be a part of that objective. From the very beginning, he's had Gentiles included into his people. And so Paul says in Romans 9, it is not those of the flesh who are children of Israel, but the child of promise by faith. How is God working in you? How are you utilized right now to fulfill God's plan to take the gospel to the nations? And then pray, how can we as a church... How can we as a church get in the game, so to speak, and start taking that out to the nations? We do this right now by giving to the co-op program. Uh, Southern Baptist Convention, that means a portion of all that you give, 10% in our church, uh, goes to the Southern Baptist Convention for missions across the world. Praise God. Wouldn't it be cool if not only did we give money, but we as a church actually reached an unengaged, unreached people group who's never heard the gospel from Maui, that we're going out there, we can do this, brothers and sisters. God commands us to do this. He's equipped us to do this. Be praying about how we can do that. And be praying that God would fuel the missional fires in your soul to do it. Second thing, So there are those across the world who don't have access to the gospel. They are unreached people. They don't know it. God loves them. He has a plan for them. But there's those in our pews. There are those across the street, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members. It's not so much that they're unreached by the gospel. It's that they feel unreachable by the gospel. And they may feel unreachable because like Judah and Tamar, they might have done things in their life that are pretty morally wicked. And they might feel like, I don't deserve this. I, I, I could never, God would never forgive me. And all of these are lies by Satan that he uses to paralyze and stagnate them for what God has in store for them, for all the joys that God has in store for them. You know people like this, Yes? You know these family members, and they're just, they feel unreachable by the power of the gospel. I encourage you, 
Pray for boldness to tell them the good news, to remind them as often as you can that there is hope, that God uses brokenness, that he'll forgive you, and there is life if you'll turn and come back. You're not outside the reach of the gospel. Maybe there's one of you in here. Maybe that's you. You feel unreachable by the gospel. Maybe you feel like God won't forgive you, like you deserve this pain and hardship. Brothers and sisters, let me give you good news. None of us deserves forgiveness. Truth number one, that's only a half truth. None of us deserves forgiveness from God. No, not one. But that's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel comes to us through the grace of God that he identifies the grace of God has appeared, namely Titus chapter 2, Jesus. God's grace is his undeserved favor towards sinners. Praise God. Which means that the good news is if that's you, and if you're here and you feel like you are outside the grasp, the saving grasp of God, like you don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus today, he offers you life. And what do you have to do? You have to give me a million dollars. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to do anything. The Bible calls it the gift of God. You receive it by faith, like a gift. You don't do anything for it. You trust Jesus wholly and follow him. So will you come? Will you come this morning? Brothers and sisters, your life is short. Live with intentionality every day. We are called to reach the unreached and those who feel unreachable for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is always relevant. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would bear now the message uh, to your people that you want them to hear. May they be encouraged knowing there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is strength, and there is grace for them whenever they turn to Christ. And Lord, I ask that you do these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.